Welcome to Mormons on Mushrooms. In this podcast, we discuss alternative methods for healing from trauma and seeking a fulfilling life. We often discuss triggering topics, and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. In addition, the opinions offered by our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the hosts of this podcast. If you'd like to support the program, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mormons on Mushrooms. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All okay, right. so now we are recording. Uh, Carolyn, so excited to have you on. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we're joined by Carolyn Elliott, author of Existential Kink, a book that the three of us have all read and loved and are so excited to have multiple, you on. Multiple times, I think, yeah. each, right? <laughs> I, in fact, I listened, I, I, I listened to it because, so hearing your voice is uh, like, uh, you know, like a warm blanket right now for me. Oh, same, but, same. Uh, I have to tell you that just to prepare this week to, I listened to it a third time, but I listened to it on that two times speed. And so <laughs> I don't know if you've heard your own voice at two times speed, but it's like having the chipmunk say to you, God is one kinky ass motherfucker. And that's, not, <laughs> that's that is, I didn't know that I needed that in my life, but I did need that in my life. It's huge. Oh, I love that. Um, so I, I guess first, and I'll tell you how I, I stumbled upon the book and how we reached out to you, but I want to know, since you're on Mormons on Mushrooms, like, do you have any associations, connections, any, any, anything with Mormonism that you know of? You know what? I was trying to think if I actually, um, like had any Mormon friends and that sadly, I don't think that I do. I have had interactions with Mormon missionaries. I have, um, I've seen the musical that the South Park folks yeah. made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. tickling. Um, I have, I watched recently, I think, um, a documentary on Netflix called Murder in Salt Lake City or Murder something. Among yeah. The yeah. Yeah. Murder <laughs> Among the Mormons. Yeah. I watched that. That was pretty riveting. Um, I have, I think it's, I do think it's fascinating how Joseph Smith, um, was so into magic and weirdness and was obviously a very persuasive guy and okay. got people to follow him across the country. Right. I do think that those things are interesting. I have never read the book of Mormon cover to cover, although I sort I think I somewhat maybe get the gist of it. Um, but uh, my associations, um, I, I do. Oh, the Mormon tabernacle choir Lovely Christmas. Lovely, yes. <laughs> um, I have thought that um, I have gotten the impression from reading about Mormonism. And I think I read a few Mormon mommy blogs at one point, just out of sheer fascination <laughs> and voyeurism. Um, but uh, I got the impression that there definitely was an element of a lot of repression in it. Like you're 
podcast tagline talks about and a lot of sort of making things look nice on the surface and maybe not being super honest with everybody and ourselves about what we're really feeling. And uh, that sounds similar to um, a strain of what I grew up with. I, I had a very strange religious upbringing, but part of my religious upbringing was straight up uh, Italian American Catholicism. Yeah. And um, that is very also into, you know, uh, feeling bad <laughs> about oneself for normal human things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just well, that's stuffing it all, stuffing it all and putting it down the shadow. Oh, we'll deal with this later. I'm just going to stuff more and more in this deep down and, 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 put it into my shadow. Sorry, Mike, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. Cause I mean, I was about to say the same thing because Mormonism and these uh, Orthodox religions really cast a long shadow, you know, it's so, we're so emphasis on the light, be happy, be cheerful, be, I mean, you've seen that in the musical it's, they're not lying. I mean, the Mormons <laughs> are uh, to your face that cheerful usually most of the time. <laughs> um, Mike and I saw is, that musical together. Uh, we got high and went to that musical and then during, uh, you know, <laughs> During intermission, I was trying to teach Mike how to take a, a hit from the the vape pen, and then <laughs> mm-hmm. no one could, and then and, and then you could like, uh, like release it into your beer as you took a drink of beer. Um, <laughs> so I showed Mike how to do that, and so Mike Mike takes the hit, and then he's drinking the beer, and this big old plume of like smoke just like starts going everywhere. The beer starts dripping. People are looking over at us. We're like, oh, we're just, we're literally Mormons here at the Book of Mormon musical. <laughs> I mean, watching that high with you, Doug, was a spiritual experience for me, though. Same. Watching it, yeah, just really healed a lot of mission stuff for me. Got rid but, of so much mission shit yeah. for me. It was so fucking good. <laughs> so fucking good. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember how I stumbled upon your book. I think it was probably through an Instagram ad. So good job on your Instagram ads. But, and I saw the mm-hmm. title and I'm like, uh, yes. And then, well, I saw the title, was curious, clicked on the link. And so for the last year and a half, I've been seeing this therapist who's also a Jungian analyst mm-hmm. and been working with my dreams and shadow and everything. And, but when I read your book, it kind of blew it all wide open. And I realized, oh yeah, I want to do this shadow work because I want to self-improve. And, you know, I was taking a very Mormon pro- approach to it. Like I'm doing this for self-work and improvement, not really to like dig in and be like, no, I'm going to love these parts of myself that I've repressed. And that's where I was immediately hooked. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, without, yeah, could you kind of describe, I guess, ex- existential kink and what, what sure. you mean by that? Absolutely. So existential kink, it's, an, it's both a general life attitude and a specific meditational practice that's all about making the unconscious conscious. So Carl Jung, the great psychotherapist, said, Unless we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. And something that Jung and Freud and Adler and um, Lacan and all the pioneering psychotherapists were aware of and that they talked about was that we humans have a way of um, unconsciously attaching pleasure to things that we would normally consider to be bad or painful or frustrating, like scarcity, like rejection, like humiliation, like frustration itself. 
Um, and we do this at a totally unconscious level. So like nobody's waking up in the morning and being like, oh, yay. I, oh God, I can't wait to get rejected today. Oh, my gosh. That'd be so awesome. And maybe my bank account will be like negative $50. <laughs> yes. Oh. You know, nobody does that. It's not conscious, but unconsciously, very, very many of us do that. And um, so through this unconscious pleasure that we attach to things, um, we end up recreating these patterns over and over again because they match that unconscious enjoyment. And sort of as long as that pleasure stays unconscious, which means as long as our our ordinary ego is like, oh no, I don't understand. Why do I keep ending up in this situation? Why can't I make more than you know, a certain amount of money every month. Why do I keep dating the same kind of person? Oh, just the world. It's my fate. It just happens to me. As long as we have that um, approach, it will remain unconscious. And as long as it remains unconscious, it has power to keep repeating. And what it's seeking, in, and that Freud called it the repetition compulsion. And what it's actually seeking is conscious um, is to be consciously felt and acknowledged and experienced and enjoyed and loved. And when we're able to do that with these taboo, weird, unconscious pleasures in seemingly very unpleasant things, um, we're able to liberate the energy that was previously uh, sort of unconsciously grasping after this thing over and over again. We liberate that energy and... Um, we are no longer compulsively acting out that pattern. And usually what happens is it's sort of like we, um, we become aware of new horizons in our lives and we can use that liberated energy to create new things, to go, you know, to create our dreams. And it's really fascinating. So when I say taboo desires, a lot of people think like, Oh, I don't know sex with animals or, you know, like, <laughs> like that, but actually by taboo desires, um, really, if we think about everything that it's normal to desire and normal to want, right. Are things that, um, will support our ego and our body's continued existence. So lots of money, lots of health, lots of love, lots of social approval. Um, these are all the things that the ego wants, but as Carl Jung pointed out, um, the ego, which is the part of us that's identified with our bodily survival, our material existence, is just a teeny tiny part of our whole mm -hmm. psyche. Yeah. Our whole psyche seems to be this um, reflection of, of everything, a little microcosm of the whole universe that includes absolutely everything, all the archetypes, all of the um, collective memory of humanity, including the collective memory of our non-human ancestors, animals, plants, mushrooms, bacteria, all of that is in our DNA. It's in us. And um, so for every normal, good, egoic desire that we have, we another part of our psyche has um, a desire for the opposite thing that is exactly as strong as that normal desire. So in other words, um, I have a conch, I've had bodhisattva vows, which are um, a vow to liberate all beings from suffering. So I have a conscious desire to liberate all beings from suffering. I'm very sincere about that. I can cry tears of compassion, all of that. I also have another part of me that equally is 
super, super committed to and absolutely desires for everybody, including myself, to suffer endlessly mm. and just really, really wants that 1000%. And likewise, my conscious mind, I want millions of dollars. I want to like jump into a pool of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck and style, DuckTales. <laughs> Yeah, Yo, come yeah. on now. Yes. Yeah. DuckTales all day, all Life day. Life is like a hurricane here in Duckport. I Duff can't Park. believe that was our first <laughs> DuckTales reference after 40 episodes, Doug. <laughs> no, I thought we had one. We did have one, I think. Oh, we did we? Okay, it, good. we sing Life is like a hurricane? I mean, you're doing it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, I, I definitely want tons of money. My conscious mind does. But my unconscious mind, uh, I have found another part of my psyche is massively, massively so turned on and excited by and takes such enjoyment in like scarcity and doom and like where, how am I going to eat? How will I pay the rent? Oh, I've like, like just yeah. loves, 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 loves that. Finds so much pleasure in it. Finds it so entertaining. And likewise, my conscious mind is like, oh, I want a partner who will tenderly respect me and adore me and worship me. Right. And then another part of me is like, Oh gosh, but actually what I really want is to be devalued and treated like I'm worse than nothing. And, you know, like these desires. So, you know, um, Freud recognized that we all have these kind of conflicting desires. His classic example was the, the Oedipal complex. So the Oedipal complex is a case of conflicting desires where um, it's like, oh, um, I love my father. Uh, my father is great. He helps me. He protects me. He takes care of me. This is like a conflicting desire in a, in a little boy's mind. Love dad. Dad's yeah. awesome. Need dad to survive. But dad keeps getting in the way of my time with mommy. I don't like that. I want to kill dad. I want dad to die like right now and go away so I can have mommy all to myself. So that's completely normal. That like basically that aggression, like all of us human beings have this really intense aggression and all. And, but it's right. It's societally found on. You're not supposed to feel ever, ever, ever feel that level of aggression towards your parents. It's very rare. In, at least in Freud's day and probably still today, that a father would sit down with his little son and be like, hey, probably sometimes you want me to die so you can have mommy all to yourself. I get that. That's cool. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You know, so um, so since that happens so rarely, you know, what Freud noticed would there he himself, this was like basically he was speaking about himself when he wrote about this, but he also noticed it in a few other patients of his. Um, developed these whole um, sort of life distortions to keep themselves from ever becoming aware of that repressed desire to kill their father, who they also loved. Um, and that repressed uh, I don't know why, but I never, ever, ever want to go across that bridge in that part of town um, I just won't go across it. Mm. And it's because, you know, they associate it with their father in some sideways way. They're all, all of this 
kind of mysterious ways that the mind works. Anyways, so these conflicting desires are basically the source of human, um, in, in many, many ways, the source of human illness and the source of creating patterns in our lives that mm. are frustrating and unfulfilling until we are willing to fully embrace the joy in that frustration and unfulfillment. So we make these unconscious desires conscious and we, in existential kink practice, we hold the attitude that all desires are equally valid, equally beautiful, equally honorable. Like my desire to be completely uh, treated like an object and valueless and terrible and worthless is just as beautiful, just as perfect, just as worthy of love as my desire to be made queen of the universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, or, or simpler desires, like my <laughs> desire for sunshine and good food, the, all desires are equal and we don't have to, that doesn't mean that we need to, um, you know, act all of them out or fulfill all of them. It just means that we need to be willing to feel them and be present with them um, with equanimity. So, well, and there's that fear that, um, when we do make it conscious that we will automatically, that it will possess us, that we will act it out. But just like you were saying it, the opposite is actually true. Is it? It's absolutely the opposite. So the thing is, is you are already being completely possessed by your unconscious desires and enjoyments. So no worries about, you might as well go ahead and feel them and, and love them and enjoy them because they are absolutely running your life anyway. Oh, that's so true. I, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned rejection because that's the one that came. So first time I read through the book and I did the EK method, by the way, girl, you got a, you got a method that you coined. That's pretty badass, right? Like yes. you got a, you got a <laughs> fucking method. That's cool. <laughs> anyway, I won't go into detail because if listeners want to learn about the EK method, then buy the fucking book and read it. Uh, but as I was doing it, um, my mission came came in through the through the meditative uh, portion where, you know, as a missionary for two years, I, I, my mission was in Taiwan, a little island off the coast of China. And missionaries face rejection. I mean, most of your two years is just rejection. It's like it's like a 99 percent rejection rate. It's, you know, the, the, the meme of missionaries knocking on doors and people slamming the door in their face. It's a real thing. But what I do, what I sort of came to the realization was. At the time, they convince you that, no, you're not being rejected. You're being rejected on behalf of God or Jesus or whoever. And so, therefore, it doesn't count as rejection on your personal soul. And, well, that's kind of bullshit when, no, I'm the one that's face-to-face being rejected. And so, I developed this weird masochist fucking fetish for rejection that has stayed with me 40 years old now. So my mission was 20 years ago, but I still look, I, I, I found myself being able to put in like real clear perspective ways that I was sabotaging possible success or possible things to dig in and fill up that little rejection kink that I needed to, that, that I needed to experience. And that's what came from. So it's so funny that, that you mentioned rejection while you were talking about what is you know, what is existential kink? Cause that was the big one that came up for me. And a lot of times on this p- podcast, we talk about aha moments that we have w- when doing, uh, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or LSD or other kind of antigens. But that realization was yeah. such a huge one for me because I'm sober, I'm doing the thing, I'm doing the meditation, I'm writing down. <laughs> and then, oh shit, that's what's happening here. 
holy crap. And I love it kind of, and I can, and I can pinpoint why and when I do it. Oh, loved it. Sorry. That, I have no question in that. I just wanted to add to the conversation <laughs> of that just uh, came full circle for me. And I just, I'm, I'm kind of like floating right now. It feels so good. Yeah. I'm so, so happy for you. Yay, Doug. Yeah. I've, I've had similar experiences with it. That is something that I find really fun about EK is it, it can, it's, it is a little bit like a completely legal psychedelic in that it can, it, it's a very sort of non-dual tantric practice. And when we're really able to surrender and let ourselves go there, you can open up similar kinds of doorways and realizations that psychedelics can. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of psychedelics, do you, uh, in your, in your thank yous, uh, in, in the book, you do mention some of your, uh, your coven, some of your witchy women, wild women type of thing. And one of the things you say is thanks for the strong medicine. Now that can mean, uh, you know, <laughs> their love and support and affection and good energy and good vibes, but it also can mean strong, good plant medicine. Is Are you willing to come clean on any of that kind of stuff and give us? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I'm a, so a big fan of both, big fan of both good vibes and psychedelic medicine. So my absolute um, favorite is ayahuasca. Yeah. So I love, love, love ayahuasca. And um, I've been very blessed to be able to take ayahuasca on a number of occasions um, in a number of different contexts. Also, you know, San Pedro, uh, peyote, mushrooms, glorious, glorious, glorious. I love cannabis, but when I take cannabis, I end up eating, you know, whole pizzas and stuff like that. So <laughs> me and cannabis kind of have to stay away from each other. But, um, but I love, 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 love all of these medicines. And I'm so excited about this time in the world where, um, you know, there is growing legalization in the U S and I, right now I'm in Mexico and it's so delightful. Um, there's like, <laughs> there's ayahuasca ceremonies and DMT ceremonies advertised right on the street. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. it's really fun. Mm -hmm. Kind of like here in California, but just with the strongest, like with the other, like, because we joke here in California, you know, like a uh, lady, lady weed, you know, she's out there flashing her tits on the freeway, but getting people to like come into like this plant medicine world, but mm -hmm. it's a whole new level there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really excited about it because I feel like um, we humans have gotten ourselves into such a twisted, traumatized state. And I really feel that universally like, where some people have have it much worse than others, but I feel like universally we're all pretty uh, messed up just from growing up in modern society. And I feel like these plant teachers uh, really have the ability to help us heal that trauma like nothing else can. And I'm so, so excited for this era where um, more and more people can have access to that kind of healing. And, and you talk a lot about the conscious work or the, the collective unconscious work that we need to do. How can we really dive into that? Because I know you mentioned some of the really hard traumas that we're all kind of facing collectively. And it's, it's not really our fault necessarily or our secret desires. But how do we tap into healing the collective? Yes. Excellent. Excellent question. So I, um, I've been 
really pondering this for a long time and not coming up with very good answers. But recently I had a conversation um, with a brilliant woman, um, Denitha Doe of the Money, Sex, Power podcast. She's, um, I'm not sure what her preferred term is, melanated, Black, African-American, but that is her her heritage. And she, um, she was speaking about how she, you know, she read Existential King and she really enjoyed it. And she was trying to think about how to apply it to her experiences of racism. And she didn't really know. And then one day it just occurred to her that all of the white women around her, so she'd grown up mostly around white women um, or white, white people. Her family lived in a white area. Um, even, you know, dear friends of hers, we're taking some level of sadistic pleasure in um, her and black people in general being treated as inferior or less or not given the same opportunities or, you know, and she became aware of this. I don't, I, I hope she forgives me for speaking about this in public just because I'm, I haven't, we, she and I are having some conversations in public about it soon um, which I'm very excited for. So if I'm misreporting her story, I'm very sorry, Denitha. I'm just so, so inspired by what you said. Um, but she was talking about how, you know, it was very illuminating for her and very, very freeing for her as she compassionately realized the, the sadism, that the unconscious sadism that was going on with the white people that she knew. And as she realized that, she let go of a whole lot of... Um, you know, taking it personally, basically. And that that was very liberating for her and that helped her go on to uh, greater things in her career and whatnot. So I'm very excited to have more public conversations with Denitha on this topic because she made that connection with the collective shadow work piece that I had not been able to make. So previously, right, actually a few weeks before she spoke to me about this, we spoke together, um, it was very, very interesting because I had been trying to do some collective shadow integration and that was the angle that I was going on it too. I was going on, okay, well, you know, I feel shame about my privilege and whatnot. What if I give myself full permission to really, really, really get off on like the lizard level territorial sadism of, you know, my ancestors took more resources and yay. Can I let myself really go there and just feel it and be grateful for it and let that sadistic pleasure liberate? Which of course, just as I'm saying this out loud, is obviously a very, very, very taboo thing to do. And I'm doing it because I want an end to racism in myself and others. Just let's all be clear. (laughs) Um, And I recognize that racism, right, does not end. But and I think this is what, uh, you know, has been pointed out a lot lately after the George Floyd protests and in connection with the Black Lives Matter and stuff which is that right? racism does not end just by white people being like, oh, but we are so soft-hearted and we just want the best for you. And why are you still calling us racist? That's so mean. We're really trying not to be. You know, it's like, 
no, bitch, you're fucking racist. You're sadistic <laughs> AF. Get off on it. And then when you get off on it, then it's sort of like, um, you know, just like with anything else, you don't have to keep compulsively repeating it. So, um, so one of the things I love about existential kink is, is that it can do this kind of deep integration for us. So I think a lot of times our hearts have not yet fully caught up with, um, these ancestral reptilian territorial, um, animal instinctual parts of us that, uh, are more violent, more aggressive, more sadistic. And so taking time to, to get all of us together and bring all of that into consciousness is a really interesting and powerful thing. And for me, my experience was after I was willing to get off on that myself, I had the very joyful experience of being able to talk with a melanated woman, a black woman about her experience with that. And um, I'm hoping to talk much more about collective shadow work healing with her and with other people who have experienced really deep collective shadows like racism. Um, and what I found was so interesting about, you know, what she told me is the work that she did, which I was basically getting off on other people's shadows. So I had only ever tried to get off on my own stuff before, but she got off, got off on other people's. And I was like, wow, what if I, that would really help me take a lot of stuff that I've experienced less personally and, and whatnot. So hold on just yeah, one second. Um, I'm, I'm the one recording and I think my internet's cutting out a little bit. Is zoom, is, will the zoom have caught all that? Cause it broke off a it, little bit. It all, it all came through on my end, Mike. I, I, I saw it kind of, I saw it kind of freeze up for a second there, but it, it all came through fine. So I think. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, it, one thing I want to talk about because this is blowing my mind with this a little bit. Um, and I'm thinking about the, the collective shadow of Mormonism, you know, and, and one of the things that keeps coming up for us is just wanting to be a good, good little boy and girl, right? Like, I mean, that's how we're growing up, you know, Mormonism, you're supposed to be polite and nice and, uh, contentions of the devil and, you know, you're not supposed to be me, you know, all that. And a meek lamb without blemish. Yeah. And so one of the first things I was doing with this, with the existential kink practice uh, is kind of feeling into that. It, well, I was feeling into a situation and that turned into like this, oh, I just want to be a good boy, you know, and kind of be stroked for being a good boy. You're such a good boy. But then I realized, oh, equally, there's someone in me who wants to kill my father, who wants to like be just be an asshole and like a violent ass I mean, to compensate for that good boy. So then I had to go the other way and really love the bad Mike. I mean, bad, like it got, but it gets scary. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's, he's angry and he's pissed. And he's, uh, I don't know. It, it gets scary when you're looking at it, but then you're just like trying to just send love to that part that just wants to like, watch the world burn almost. <laughs> Bad Absolutely. boy Mike is sexy. Yeah, well, <laughs> that too. And um, I, I totally hear what you're saying because I've I found this in myself too, the place where it starts to get like scary to give approval to those parts. And the thing that I try to keep in mind, um, like, uh, is that since my my psyche is a microcosm of the whole, the whole includes 
murderers, Hitler. Uh, you know, it's like in new age circles, everybody's like, oh, we're all one. And like, yes, it's, isn't it so nice to say that until you remember that all of us in the one include rapists and murderers and everybody. Right. So <laughs> um, what what it clues me into is that in order to really, really feel compassion for those elements of myself that are murderous, that are violating, that are super aggressive and super angry and reactive and all of that, that it uh, it's very, very humbling. And it makes it really, um, I've come to see that I can't afford to harshly judge anybody, anybody else, like all the murderers in the world, all of the all of the people committing the atrocities, like they're just at some level, they're just confused children also. And um, feeling compassion for them and feeling compassion for me and um, being willing to see that we actually are all inseparable. I, oh God, I had this really deep sort of vision in meditation the other day, which I saw I was meditating on this thing called unified physics. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but there's this physicist named Nassim Haramein who has, he's kind of unorthodox by the establishment, but he's a real brilliant guy. And um, he's shown that there's this uh, pervasive network of really teeny tiny quantum subatomic particles called Planck scale units. And they're in this, flower of life pattern actually and they pervade everything and they um they correspond to what the ancient philosophers and people in the 19th century used to call ether it's this ether that pervades everything and he's found that space what we call empty space is not actually empty at all it's extremely dense with energy because these planck scale units um i don't know they 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 and they contain these enormous amounts of energy, but they are in what we call space. They're balanced in such a way that they're at something called zero point equilibrium, which means that they're just balanced. They're like at rest in a certain sense. And he made this point that all, everything in manifestation, all matter, all energy is these Planck scale units in a state of disequilibrium. So anything in the manifest world is disequilibriated little drops of ether. So if you think about that, you think about in these disequilibriations, there's various kinds of patterns. And um, the main pattern is a torus. So the, the universe is a torus. The galaxy is a torus. The electromagnetic field of the earth is a torus. Human bodies are electromagnetic fields or toruses. It's toruses all the way down. Um, <laughs> there's a coherence when, when a human heart is really aligned with the human mind, there's the heart math Institute has studied this. There's a coherent field that's generated a coherent electromagnetic field, basically a coherent Taurus. And, um, and people like say the Dalai Lama or probably Jesus had really, really coherent, have really, really coherent fields and they're saintly and they're beautiful. And just by being in their presence, you're like, oh my God, everything is great. I love everybody. Yay. Okay. But wherever there is coherence, 
in manifestation somewhere, there is also incoherence. Um, there is also, um, and, and so people who commit terrible atrocities who are, you know, abusing children, et cetera, are in these incoherent states where they are not fully aligned in their being. They're not really in their heart. They're very, very confused and they're doing this harmful stuff. What I came to see was that since all manifestation is disequilibration, no matter how coherent I am, somewhere in the larger fractal of reality, there is an incoherence that corresponds to my coherence. So, for example, Jesus, he was so, so coherent, and he was part of this fractal that was surrounded by Herod, who was murdering little children, by Judas, who betrayed him, by Pilate, who killed him, by Caesar, who was oppressing Israel, by, you know, he was part, he was a beautiful, coherent center in this fractal of manifestation that included all of these other dastardly characters who are absolutely one with him, who are the same as him. And he knew that, which is what made him a fucking brilliant magician worth following, worth imitating. Um, but the rest of us dum-dums go around being like, oh, that person's bad. I'm not. I'm great. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no, however great you are, that bad person over there is absolutely 1000% a necessary part of your manifestation because any manifestation and form involves this disequilibration and this coherence that devolves into incoherence in the larger fractal. And so it won't all be resolved until we're all back into that uh, perfect equilibrated state and have all dissolved back into absolute pure space, which I guess is what Nirvana is. I think that's what the Buddha was talking about. Yeah. Um, but if there's any manifestation at all, then there's disequilibration at some point. So anyways, mm -hmm. that was very humbling to realize. So for me, um, I was, I was abused by my father as a child. I was molested and it was very, very humbling for me to realize that, um, you know, not only am I half of made, made of his DNA, but that his, his incoherence and his evil and his confusion is an absolutely necessary part of the fractal of manifestation of my uh, sweet little bodhisattva heart. So we are, you know, absolutely connected and I don't get to exist literally and metaphorically on multiple levels without his existence. And likewise for all of the other uh, criminals in the world. So it does get very scary to give love to those parts of us and those parts of the world. But what I like to think about is for me, and I, I think actually objectively, if, if anybody, <laughs> I think objectively what love is, is that which is capable of loving its total opposite. So I don't think love is love if it's not capable of loving hatred, violence, you know, um, terror, all, all of ugliness. Um, love is that force which can ultimately balance us and take us into that deep, deep equilibrium and deep, deep freedom. So as long as I'm trying to be like, oh, I only love good people and I only love good things about myself. And it's like, uh, that's not really... That's not really love. That's something else. Let's, let's like, basically. 
<laughs> oh, I really wish listeners could see your face as you're, I just, just, you're so, I just love it. I'm loving this. so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're short on time. Any questions that you were itching to ask Elise or Doug that. <sighs> well, I guess like quickly, I was just thinking if like you were talking about the equilibrium, if it's balanced or unbalanced, do you think then that the people who are doing these horrible crimes or abuses are just giving more love to their shadow than to the light. And if we all gave equal amounts of love to our light and our shadow, do you think it would put us at that perfect equilibrium? Oh, fascinating question. Um, so generally folks, so, um, so the metaphor, so definitely, okay. So (laughs) there's a few different layers here, of different polarities. So for, equilibrium and disequilibrium that's at the level of so total equilibrium is non-manifest is space it's actually it's dark matter so that's total equilibrium anything that's manifest any light electricity energy matter is disequilibrium so the other polarity that i was talking about in terms of like human action um or vibration would be coherence and incoherence. So we're, we're these fields, we're these electromagnetic fields. And, um, the, in order to have a really coherent electromagnetic field, you really actually do need to be super in love with your shadow. You need to be super like deeply okay with the parts of yourself that are, that have these violent urges or you, so like there's a beautiful quote, Alan Watts, um, who was a great teacher in the sixties said this about Carl Jung. He said, um, something that I loved about Carl Jung is you could look into his eyes and, you know, this kind, brilliant man who had healed so many people from terrible mental conditions. And you could see he had this twinkle in his eye that let you know that he knew that he was an absolute villain. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. I love that. (laughs) And um, so, you know, Carl Jung had this kind of coherence. He had this sort of like saintly field. Um, So people who are acting out their evil instead of just quietly twinkling about it people who are compulsively acting it out i would say are have are not really loving their shadows they're not really integrating anything they're probably really fragmented and really in denial and in repression on multiple Mm -hmm. different ways so um but what i'm saying is that when we look at the whole i mean what i'm saying is is a is a big (laughs) it's a big concept what i'm saying is when we look at the whole mandala of manifestation everything, everything, everything. And the example of Jesus's life, we consider if we, if we sort of draw a circle around Jesus, let's say just a big circle around Jesus, but Jesus right at the center, big circle for all of recorded history surrounding. Okay. We can, which is, you know, the, I guess the traditional Christian interpretation. And, and it's what I, I like that too. I love my favorite magician. Anyway, so right there at the center <laughs> of the mandala. And we look, we look all around the mandala, we see there's all these different sort of freaky things, all of these villains surrounding Jesus, right? Like Herod, like Caesar. Um, 
And we see that it's actually impossible for Jesus to have manifested without everything else that was manifesting at that time. So he was this amazing field of coherence and sort of, if you think about it as um, if you throw a stone in a pond, the waves around the stone initially will be very, very coherent, very clear circles. And then as it gets farther and farther away from the center, it's more fragmentary and more incoherent. So that's sort of what I'm talking about. There's like this super drop of coherence. And then there's these incoherent manifestations around too. But the apparent incoherence is just as important and just as valuable and absolutely necessary to the manifestation of the coherence in this funny, disequilibriated, manifest world that we have. So, um, I, so that leads to the question like, well, is it possible to have for one to become enlightened or a great saint or whatever without also having these corresponding evils around and and i think the ultimate question is no i mean maybe like maybe earth can evolve to this condition where we can all be saintly to each other and everything can be super fabulous we can just be amazing but i think that correspondingly somewhere else in the galaxy there's going to be some shitty stuff going on. <laughs> well that makes sense because it would it would eradicate duality in that way Yes. Balance. Balance, balance and counterbalance, well, basically. So we're saying we can dump all our shit on Mars and then just have live in paradise on Earth? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Or, I mean, I think there, there might be some other solution that I'm not yet... Um, I mean, well, I, I guess it's a deep philosophical question here, but there could be some other route maybe involving black holes and wormholes that helps us balance our mm. stuff out. I don't know, but... Yeah, well, what a we, wonderful conversation today. Thank you so we much. We could be the result. Wisdom. We could be the result on Earth of some other uh, interplanetary species balancing their shit out. I mean, it's, right, yeah. it's fractals everywhere you go. I mean, <laughs> so to to find that balance is just to it's just to it's just to recognize it and to lean in a little bit on it. Uh, I know you're short on time here, so my two questions to follow up are: When can we all trip together? And more importantly, yeah. how can our listeners? find you, follow you, support you, all that kind of stuff. What are the best ways? <laughs> Great. Well, to answer the second question first, um, people can find me at carolyngraceelliot.com is my website. Um, there's forms leading to my email list there. I highly suggest getting on my email list. I send out pretty cool emails and you'll be notified of when the various courses and programs that I run open up. Um, also following me on Instagram is a great idea. I'm at Elliot underscore on Instagram. Um, I run a membership program that's really amazing called uh, Wealth, the uh, alchemical community where leaders come into their full power via the hermetic arts. That will open again for registration next year. So there is quite a bit of a wait for that. But in the meantime, I'll probably be offering some other really cool programs like Influence, my life-changing program on practical magic, uh, Thrill, my program on um, growing a business online using writing. I have all sorts of fun stuff. I also have something, um, an existential kink life coach training program, which is really, really fun and really, really amazing. That's called Sovereigns, and that will open for application in June. 
So if you get on my email list, get on my Instagram, you'll find out when that opens for application. And that is this really cool uh, in-person um, thing. Well, it's in-person and online, but we have four in-person weekends where we meet together and uh, me and my team train you how to be an existential kink coach. And it's really, really fun. Oh, I also have existential kink related um, retreats coming up that are not awesome. part of the coach training. They're just sort of these one-off retreats. So I have one. Um, it will, it, one will be this summer and it will be centered around, uh, well, I could go into all these details, but there's going to be one this summer. There's going to be one around uh, November and there's going to be, anyways, there, it would take me a while to explain the retreats, but there's a lot of stuff going on. So follow me and you'll find out about all the stuff. And as to when we can trip together, do you all live in California? Yeah. Well, not I, Doug. I'm in Idaho, but I can get to California real quick. Okay. Where in California are you, Mike? Oh, we're both in Los, uh, Suisse and I are both in Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know when I'm next going to be in Los Angeles, but, um, I have your number, Mike, so yeah, we can be in it. touch. Um, <laughs> if you, what, what's your favorite medicine to trip with? Is it mushrooms? Oh, we'll let you pick, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, Mormons on mushrooms. We can do, you can yeah. do mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, ayahuasca, you mentioned ayahuasca is like just life-changing, you know, uh, when I want to get big and understand the entire universe, I go with LSD. When I want to dig into my own self, I go with mushrooms. Uh, if I want to live my every single daily life, I smoke weed. So those are my, <laughs> that's my <laughs> drug of choice. Yeah. Beautiful. So what you pick. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much. I know we're out of time and uh, I can't you. appreciate it enough. This has been so yeah. great. And I so think it's good. just going to, your book it blew my mind. I think for ex-Mormons in particular, or Mormons even, it's going to blow their minds too when they listen to it. And I think it's it's really just a, a life-changing book. So thank you. Yeah. I bought a hot pink kink journal to start writing in. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I have a hot pink journal this month too. Hot pink journals nice. are in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Man, I want to get a hot pink journal. Yeah. <laughs> and I do love that Jesus was my favorite magician. That's my, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, same. I like that was... him, yeah. Yeah. I mean, power, I like to call him queer witch Jesus sometimes that <laughs> we could go on about Jesus. You want to have a whole conversation about Jesus? Yeah. Let me know. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I'll let you guys Bye. go. Bye. Thank you Thanks, guys. So yeah. Great to talk with you. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to Mormons on Mushrooms podcast. We have so much fun recording it. And if you love it, we would absolutely love it if you could leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It would really help our visibility so more people can listen to it and be enlightened and hear our crazy stories. So thanks again for tuning in. Thank you.